Hello and welcome to the Wealth Reliance Podcast. My name is Dave Deal. This is the podcast for the side cash hustler. If you want insights, real life experience from people just like you on how they started creating side income, you are in the right place. Documented experiences of people creating a few hundred dollars to extra tens of thousands of dollars a month. Make sure to subscribe and review. This means more than you know. Also, feel free to check us out at selfreliantwealth.com. Before we jump into the episode, let's take a minute to thank our sponsors. Hello and welcome back to the Self Reliant Wealth Podcast. My name is Dave Deal and I'm your host. Today we have a wonderful guest. This gentleman is a genius when it comes to looking at the numbers, crunching the numbers, making the deals happen. Uh, Not only is he a financial engineer and real estate investor, but he has created some of his own lanes and own avenues to be able to finance or not finance, but look at the financing of deals to make sure that the numbers work in a way that I've never seen possible. Without further ado, Stefan, why don't you come out and share a little bit about you and what you've got going on right now, buddy? Yeah. Hi, everyone. Thanks, Dave, for inviting me. I really appreciate the introduction. And um, yeah, so just uh, like you mentioned, I am a financial engineer. I worked uh, as a derivatives trader, actually, for 10 years. Um, But I am actually now a multifamily investor. And uh, the the day discussion, actually, so is on um, overvalued markets. At least that's something I want to touch, like kind of a was a more sensitive topic at the beginning of COVID. Like people were concerned, like, is it, are some markets about to take a downturn, things like that. And I was personally concerned myself. So I wanted to know um, what are some metrics that are possibly predictive of downturns supposed to peak. So that was kind of the motivation at the time. I wanted to know, now, should I just wait now? Or, you know, should I, you know, keep investing the same way um, and stuff like that. And um, yeah, so that was, that was some of the motivation. So with that, let me share my screen for a second. If you can, I think you need to permit it, Dave, the screen sharing part. Yeah, you think you're um, right. Let's see. Okay, you should have access now. Yeah, cool. Cool, okay. Um, yes, yeah, so I just, I was just looking basically before, um, you know, at the onset of COVID, I wanted to see like which things have predicted the 2007 crash, for example, and sort of applied to the current, you know, potential scenario that could could emerge at an uncertain point in the future. So that could be, you know, five years from now or one year from now or whatever. So I just wanted to see when that happens, okay, what's going to predict the magnitude of the drops? And um, And to clarify, it's not... It's not when, it's not the timing. There is, it's very difficult to predict the timing. It's more like, okay, which markets are currently overvalued? That's on a predictive metric that has, you know, um, you know, good predictive power. So that was the motivation. So, um, so for that, uh, yeah, yeah. So for that, like, for example, if we look at markets today, and so I, I looked at like a deviation of price income ratio from historical levels. So that was like the the simplest metric that actually worked. And then I looked at other more complicated ones or more like sort of more details into them. And then, um, so so in in that framework, for example, price income ratio deviation, which is what most economists use. So we have at the beginning of COVID and it's pretty much the same picture, similar picture right now. We had Idaho 
over Vermont, Nevada, Arizona, um, you know, basically a few states. And most of the states in the U.S. actually undervalued. So, so that was quite interesting. Um, so, so Idaho at like 22%, Nevada 17%, Arizona, Colorado 13%, Arizona 12%, Texas 11%. Those uh, 40-11, those are pretty much some of the more overvalued states, but not in a heavily overvalued region as well. On the contrary, it would be uh, places like um, uh, places like uh, well, uh, Illinois, Connecticut, Arkansas. That some of them are really depressed, in fact, but they have nevertheless remained undervalued, and they're nevertheless more protected in the event of a downturn. Um, so, so yeah, so undervalued states: Illinois, Connecticut, Arkansas, West Virginia, Wisconsin, Alabama, Mississippi, Iowa, Ohio, etc. And, um, and yeah, so just to give like a little bit of cover of like where I was inspired and what exactly I'm talking about here, like what metric. So that's um, just one moment. So, um, so in finance, so like I come from a background in finance, right? So in finance, if we take a hedge fund, so every hedge fund would at the very least, uh, know the pricing, price earnings ratios of their securities. Now, if we look in real estate and we look at investment managers that manage uh, substantial assets in some cases, if that's a huge institutional investor like Blackstone, Blackstone, et cetera, I'm sure maybe they do. But if we look at the intermediate range of, for example, multifamily syndicators, uh, they generally don't. So they wouldn't know, for example, if they're investing in um, um, in Austin, Texas, they don't know where valuations stand in Austin, te Texas at the current time. They don't know if Austin, Texas is overvalued or not. They know quite well if their properties are overvalued, but they don't have a sense as to, um, so, so good sense as to the market. And sometimes it could be, you know, their intuition is, oh, the market maybe is too high, but it's not actually the case. And um, yeah, so in finance, an example of this, with my approach was, is John P. Hussman, uh, who is a the founder of Hussman Investment Trust, which is a hedge fund. So he did the following study where he showed the series of metrics and their predictiveness versus actual subsequent S&P 500 total returns. So for example, a metric that they designed that is non-financial market cap corporate gross value added had 91% correlation versus actual subsequent S&P 500 total returns. Um, and so it was it's kind of had this kind of predictive power. Uh, and then price earnings ratio, the most common metric, had uh, uh, 76% predictiveness and, and stuff like that. So that's kind of what inspired me, like what is in the case of real estate going to be the most predictive metric. Now, similar studies have been done by other economists. So, for example, Niraj, or like economists, um, Niraj Shah um, from, uh, uh, I think, uh, yeah, okay. So that was from a study that was published in Visual Capitalist. So he did this, the study included several criteria, house price to rent ratio, house, house price to income ratio, uh, real house prices, credit of households, percent of GDP. And on price to rent, uh, he showed certain countries very overvalued. So that was in 2019. So that's Canada, countries in Scandinavia, like Norway and Sweden, as well as Australia and New Zealand, and UK to an extent. So those were markets that showed up on this metric as quite overvalued. And uh, that was not the case for US. So US was like 110. And um, so, so US fairly valued, you know, Canada, Scandinavia, Australia, New Zealand, UK uh, overvalued. 
And um, before 2007, Ingo Windsor, so Ingo Windsor is, Windsor is the founder of Welcome Market Monitor uh, out in Massachusetts. So he was in, on CNN and he was talking about the uh, kind of the um, certain markets in California, especially in the Florida and other places that were um, he considered dangerously overloaded at the time. And uh, so he was looking at the uh, price to income ratios. And so he was seeing, you know, okay, a lot of markets in California are like 50% overvalued, maybe more, and stuff like that. And, um, and it was actually quite, pre-2007, if one simply looked at relationship versus income, it was actually quite easy to predict the, the drops. And people thought in 2007, there was all the mortgage-backed security, so, you know, financial engineering involved. But the actual drops that happened post-2007 were really fundamental. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, and, and I'm just going to sh- uh, show this, and that was like part of my study. So, like I said, I, for the purposes of this discussion, I did like a simple metric, simplest metric that is least not to be overfitting anything, you know, not to overdo things, just in the simple sense, percentage deviation of, from historical price income ratio. And that metric showed that the state level 83% correlation versus the subsequent actual price drops in each state. So that means, for example, if in Nevada, the metric was at 49%, so 49% overvalued. The subsequent drop in Nevada was, okay, was uh, 56, or it's, it's not the same number, you know, but it's sort right. of like over. Arizona, 55% overvalued, the actual drop was like 46%. And, and, and so overall, overvalued markets, let's say more than 10% overvalued, they experienced a median 26% drop. Um, and sorry, they, they were median 26% overvalued, they experienced a median 22% drop. Uh, markets that were fairly valued, let's say between zero and 10%, they experienced 11% drop, you know, kind of more moderate, not, it's not so bad. And then markets that were undervalued, it's one of the most stunning results. I told you this study was that they actually experienced just a drop of 4%. Hmm. So that's, I think, you know, I was like, wow, I thought it's, you know, real estate crash in 2007. It's like, oh, real estate crash in the U.S. or something, right? It's not, it's not the case. There were markets that were undervalued. In fact, all markets that were undervalued barely dropped. They dropped a median 4%, and 4% was actually the, um, uh, 4% was the, 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 the average, average um, income drop in the U.S. after 2007. So it's, one can say in valuation terms, they actually remain the same. Their valuations right. didn't drop on price income terms. They didn't drop income <laughs> simply dropped and they dropped with that. So, so kind of this kind of uh, scenario was quite interesting. Now the most overvalued markets back then, just, you know, to mention were California, Florida, Arizona, um, the district of Columbia, um, I mean, not markets, but states, let's say, right. Um, Nevada and Oregon. Um, those were the, you know, the, the really overvalued, mar- overvalued markets, these are the markets that suffered a lot back then. Uh, in the current scenario, uh, like I mentioned, it's a very different scenario. So if we take the same states, California is at 2%. It's, was, mm-hmm. At the beginning of COVID, it was at 2%, fairly valued. Florida is a little bit overvalued, but it's nothing, you know, dramatic, 11%. And, um, and so on and so forth. And um, so, it's a, so it's a very different picture right now where U.S. real estate is basically fairly valued versus, you know, income levels. And um, uh, so what are some of the, and we mentioned like some of the undervalued markets right now. Now, if a market is overvalued, it 
should it necessarily correct? So that's one thing to comment on. Not really. So it could be one scenario is that it correct, and that was the 2007 scenario, like a massive price correction across the board. Uh, it could be that it experiences like reduced price growth. So um, prices simply start growing slower, and yep. kind of income income and prices kind of catch up with each other. And uh, so that's another scenario. Or a third scenario would be that, okay, they continue, even prices, even though it's all overvalued, the prices could continue growing completely normally, but uh, income would uh, sort of super grow. You know, it's a really booming market. And then they would kind of catch up and the, the overvaluation resolves. So that's uh, just something to mention. And uh, yeah, so it's the similar study at the county level, just for the records, showed the... Uh, 73% correlation, so much harder to predict small geographies, much harder to predict counties, uh, but still fairly predictive. This is a regression of 2,700 counties of, in the US. And that still on a purely income basis, and that still showed the 73% correlation. So I thought, okay, that's, uh, you know, that's pretty decent. That's something one can work with um, to an extent. And uh, yeah, so that's like a county level regression. So from there, like what were some of the what are some of the cities that are overvalued right now? So I mentioned Idaho. So um, Idaho is uh, the sort of the most overvalued state at the moment. So Bo Boise, Boise, Idaho is the most overvalued city at thirty three percent. Not too many others particularly overvalued cities, uh, but that's uh, that's one I would say. Uh, then we have. Uh, um, Las, Las, Las Vegas, uh, Tampa, Austin, Washington, uh, Fort Worth, Phoenix, Nashville are some other well-known cities that are um, in the overvalued range. Um, again, it doesn't mean these are some of the strongest markets as well, most of them. Uh, so they are, uh, okay, they have experienced probably a little bit extra appetite, you know, uh, that yeah. maybe they should have. Um, it doesn't mean that they are going to now reverse and they're not going to be the strongest performing market markets. I don't think that's the case. I think they will continue to be, but it's just something to consider because at the moment the peak in cycle gets reached, this, this is going to be uh, the most predictive of a downtrend. When I say this is going to be the most predictive is on the basis of, um, okay, trying out different metrics. So I looked at, um, I looked at uh, sharp ratio. I looked at um, simply volatility so sharp ratio would be, let's say, um, sort of uh, risk-adjusted returns, like uh, volatility-adjusted returns. For example, in finance, I looked at like, simply volatility, I looked at the population, housing supply, and all that stuff. And, um, you know, it's not, not so predictive uh, of, uh, of downturn sports to peak. It, it is predictive. So the, the usual metric sort of that investors use to assess a market in a in a positive cycle, which is they're going to look at that market's population, they're going to look at that market's income, uh, like job growth. Um, so it's not, some of those metrics are not predictive of the downturns. So they predict well prices, you know, when things are go up, let's say, but they don't, do not capture the overvalued component so well. And um, yeah, um, yeah, as you know, general deviations from, from historical income relationship do. And uh, yeah, so those are like some of the overvalued cities. And um, yeah, what else? Now, um, it's interesting to see like some cities that have performed exceptionally well, which are nevertheless not overvalued. 
Um, so, so a strong example would be Denver, Colorado. So Denver, Colorado, out of 800 cities in America, over 50,000 population, has been the best performing city um, on a, let's say, since the previous peak. Well, mm -hmm. Not the best measure. One should look at the, the actual valuations, like take the actual fair valuation historically and uh, so forth. But, but let's say it's one, it's one metric. So, so Denver, Colorado, like, you know, best performing market, let's say, in that, in that framework, 79% since above the peak that it experienced before in 2007, 79% above. And yet it's actually fairly valued at 0% at the moment. Um, or at the beginning of COVID. So, so that's quite interesting. Another city um, I, I've mentioned uh, frequently is like San Francisco. So obviously San Francisco with COVID is having a lot of, uh, you know, difficulties right now, but purely, purely as, uh, from a valuation standpoint, at the beginning of COVID, it was 5% undervalued in spite of, uh, you know, fairly strong price growth of 48% above the previous peak. So, so it's, uh, that's, that's something else, uh, something that's interesting because, um, cities that are very um, unaffordable, like San Francisco or New York City, it doesn't mean because their their price income ratio stands at twenty or something. It doesn't mean that they are actually overvalued. They only become overvalued if their price income ratio shifts from some kind of historical window that that historical window gets pr properly selected, <laughs> and it's kind of like a well like a calibrated um, uh, moving window. Um, and so basically when they exceed their well-chosen historical level, then they're overvalued. But simply because like, because they've heard like this kind of narrative, you know, all these cities are really, you know, unaffordable and they're, you know, that's some kind of measure like that's as if it's going to predict a downturn, that's not the case. They can, they can be unaffordable, they can re remain unaffordable for a while. And that's pretty much what happens in, in big cities. And, and one of the drivers of that is housing shortage. So as uh, population to housing supply ratios shift, uh, that leads affordability, affordability, well, unaffordability sort of upward. So they, uh, they experience, uh, you know, they just, their price income ratio changes regime, so to say. So Denver, San Francisco, Pittsburgh, Omaha, Columbus, Indianapolis, Atlanta, Louisville, Philadelphia were some well-known cities that were actually, that performed very strong, but were actually, you know, they were actually not overvalued. Um, yeah. And so I can I speak to this question to, yeah. to ask to this, right, is, you know, as an investor, I mean, you're probably the most detailed from an analytic standpoint that I, you know, of anybody that I've ever interviewed. And how does this help you choose what properties you do or do not invest in. I mean, how does this help you really say, okay, these are the markets I want to focus in. This is what I want to spend my time on. Right, right. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I would say that's uh, different. The property analytics side is a whole much more complicated project that has, um, you know, so property analytics. So I do my own investment in a data-driven way. So, uh, and I actually, and that's uh, but sort of a separate topic. I actually mentor people on uh, data-driven investing. So people who want to understand like better the, their analytics, how to uh, sort of pull lots of data, like use uh, online scraping tools, even, you know, with, within, the rules of, within the rules of online platforms, et cetera, like use, um, be it uh, no code, so to, so to say, no code scraping tools, or write their own code, their own script. Yeah. 
sort of pool data online. And after they pull this data, like how to analyze it, uh, sort of price properties across different strategies, and kind of have the benefit of this, you know, not looking at the property one by one, but, you know, just simply actually being a data-driven approach where, okay, you actually are aware of the market on a big level. Because you're going to be, like, for example, I'm going to use an example. I've been doing, like, quite a few, like, I've been doing, like, some flips in the New York City area, like, sort of, like, upstate New York or um, and, and different markets. And uh, so, so I would pull, um, let's say, about within three hours of New York, there may be about 6,000 multifamilies, something like that, at any point of time. And that's on market. It's not even on off-market stuff. But, but then you can do the same with auctions, with online auctions. You can do it with commercial properties. Uh, so you can pull like um, all this data and then sort of how it automatically priced and ranked for you in different criteria. If you want to do con condominium conversions, you can put that in. You can, if you want to do like different strategies, you can put those in. So, so that's as far as that's something that I'm actually kind of mentor. Um, yeah, so yeah, if, if anyone is interested, you know, can can reach out to me. Uh, but but on the market side, on the market side, I would say, um, I would say I want to have a risk management measure, which is for me um, sort of this. Yeah. <laughs> Except I build kind of an enhanced metric on top of it, so I build sort of a pricing combination, and then I adjust it due to like some of the some of the county um, county level um, changes that I mentioned with affordability adjusted for for housing shortage. So so you sort of use income, use also population, housing supply, and kind of do a do a regression on historical data and come up okay, what's the metric that appears has the most predictive power that is the best, and um, so that's that's something else. Uh, but uh, but yeah, so if a market is undervalued, it's not going to. Um, it doesn't mean that market is going to perform well. Right. That being this, just trying to be clear what we're trying to predict here. The only thing we're trying to predict here is downturns post to peak. We're not, I'm not trying to predict price appreciation. If I was trying to predict price appreciation, the simplest thing is autocorrelation. So the simplest thing is, by the way, in real estate is you can simply even look at the historical prices. And that may sound silly, but but in most tests, uh, real estate has been proven to be, they call it weak form inefficient. So weak form efficiency is, okay, do historical prices predict future prices in finance? So if historical prices do predict future prices, the market is not even weak form efficient. And then there is semi-strong efficiency and strong form efficiency. But in real estate, um, I mean, studies vary, but in, in um, there was a study down on Istanbul, Istanbul housing prices, for example, that is one of the studies on this topic that, um, you know, that showed uh, basically rejected weak form efficiency in that case. And um, but let me show you something on, um, on predicting future prices in a very, and it's not a complex machine learning model or something, just in this very simplest sense. So... So this is a map of the U.S. Uh, where, um, I mean, for people who are watching this video, where we chose the autocorrelation. So autocorrelation is, let's say, last year with a time lag, so one year backwards versus the current year. What are the um, uh, so sort of what is the correlation of within the same time series? So within the same time series. So if we take uh, Florida, for example, so Florida has seventy-seven percent autocorrelation. So Last year, prices in Florida have 77% correlation with this year. <laughs> price growth in Florida has 77% correlation with this year price growth in Florida. That's not the case everywhere. The only right. place that has negative correlation is Alaska. 
So that's interesting. So there, see if, if it did well last year, it's as if it's counterproductive to the current year. Um, but uh, but in most places, if it places there, and, and then there is okay, South Dakota, North Dakota. That seems that there's no relation, no little relation at all. They're like one, one or six percent of the correlation. But um, but one thing, if one wants to guess a market that's gonna do well, I would uh, I would invest in well. Short of if a peak in cycle gets reached that we don't know, I would invest in Florida for the momentum there. Okay, it's likely that until the cycle continues, it's going to keep going stronger than the other markets, even though Florida is overvalued. But I would be aware of the kind of risk management measure that, okay, Florida is overvalued. So once a peak gets reached, this market is going to drop in line with its valuation. So it's just one should be kind of like timing his exit or trying to, you know, trying as much as possible to do that. Um, but th- this is uh, this is the one measure. If a market is undervalued, that's not gonna tell you. Um, that's not gonna tell you if that market is gonna do well. Right. In fact, undervalued markets are, like I mentioned, they're frequently very depressed. So those are the strong examples of Connecticut and Illinois, which are like they were okay, beginning of COVID nineteen and twenty percent undervalued. It's crazy. So like Connecticut is dramatically, dramatically undervalued. Um, but of course, is it? Would I put my money there to bet on a reversal of this? Well, that would be kind of a gamble. <laughs> I'd rather see like a price trend rather than okay, I'm going to be the pioneer of something and you know, all. Just like gamble on a trend is going to reverse. I mean, it, it's possible, maybe, maybe it's too undervalued at this point. Um, but in the end, it, those are markets that are undervalued because they have been very, very weak. And um, but there are markets that are that where that's not the case. So if we take the state of Indiana, is 27% above its previous peak in 2007. So that's that's a good performance, one can say. Um, and uh, but it's actually undervalued. It was at least you know like beginning of COVID, like six percent undervalued, uh, and yet it has performed well. So I think those are from a market standpoint, those are the markets to invest in. If one wants to be protected from a downturn, mm. if one wants to invest in the very strongest market, which is where all institutional investors go, et cetera, et cetera, of course, you go to Florida and you go to Texas. I mean, it's 80% probably. I mean, I don't have the exact statistic, but probably a huge fraction of, um, you know, anyways, I don't want to keep changing around those slides. Uh, so, um, yeah, so a huge fraction of... Um, Institutional investors, they they just you know they invest in those two states. Those are the two big states for multifamily. So so I don't advise against that. I think they're doing the right thing. They kind of have their intuition. They have seen the market. They have kind of figured it out. Now, once a peak gets reached, they just need to be aware. They need to be uh, using their you know like some some of this framework is uh, what I have been actually talking about. Um, yeah. I mean, those, that's like some information. Let me share like some other interesting stuff like about interest rates maybe quickly just to make it a little bit more. Yeah, this is just such a fascinating way to look at, you know, market trends. Because again, I think, you know, most investors, they're looking at mainly prices of real estate. They're looking at, you know, again, those uh, price increases, price decreases, looking at values. And that's really the only metric that they're looking at. This takes it to a whole nother level. Not so much, you know, hedging your bet on what's going to happen, but it gives you a much uh, more, what's the right word to use, a much more 
strategic approach to what markets you're going to invest in, right? Instead of just saying, oh, I live in this state, I'm going to invest here. You're looking at it from a much higher level and saying, okay, based on past data, past metrics, there's a lot more than just price going mm-hmm. into these decisions. So, no, I love it, man. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I agree, Dave. And I think that's just takes out all the guesswork. And it's the same. It, like I said, this is not inventing the, you know, reinventing the wheel or whatever. This is the same thing. You know, it's like the same thing that Warren Buffett does, you know, has been, was doing in, in finance, etc. Just takes out the guesswork. You're no longer gambling on where prices are going to go. You just are kind of, you have like an idea of where things stand. You're not now super worried. Like, for example, people would tell me, and I was talking to a guy who I think he uh, on Clubhouse, and he wrote a book. <laughs> and I think he got a little bit unhappy with me because he he wrote a book where he was, <laughs> you know, I think he was like predicting the. He was sort of giving a little bit of a doomsday scenario of, um, and I hope he doesn't doesn't watch this, but um, but you know, <laughs> fine. But you know, he was giving kind of a doomsday scenario of, um, of you know, U.S. real estate. You know, not so much related to COVID, but just like after this cycle, like at the end of the current cycle, due to, um, I don't know, housing is getting older and older, and like the age of housing. And I mean, okay, I can try, I have not specifically tested the age of housing, and I can try like, okay, take age of housing, it's like publicly available data, and like try to predict with that downturn supposed to peak, and I don't, I don't think it's going to work. And so, so, and for example, so that would imply, for example, like some of the the, the regions in US that have the, the oldest housing is Northeast. So Northeast like has tons of like class D, class D multifamily. And uh, so one would think, okay, Northeast, according to that framework, that's gonna really crash because it has like this super old housing. I don't think that's how it works because Northeast is like nearly immune to, to any crash at the moment. Northeast is undervalued. So even though in 2007, for example, the state of New Jersey, I live in New Jersey by New York City, so the state of New Jersey was dropped like 25% or something back then. But that's because it was 28% overvalued. It's just uh, right. it's undervalued now. There is nothing. It's just not, not the same thing is not happening. And it doesn't like all those other factors. Or, like, or another thing is like to, 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 let's say, to take an assumption that, okay, now the world is different. Like things are very different. We have lots of technology. Um, and like you see, if real estate market is no longer predicted by fundamentals, but that then the the burden of the proof stands on the person who claims this change of regime. You know, it's not a that's not something easy to 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 assume because in fact, like I said in two thousand and seven, like I, I'd like to share like a much fancier, cooler metric. You know, that's gonna work predicting the drops right. in two thousand and seven, but in fact, was income, and that's kind of ironic where you have like so much, you know, like. Quote and kind of financial engineering, call it, or you know, financial innovation done. And yet, in the end, it's in, people who just watched like income levels, they would have they would have guessed the downturns the best way. So, yeah, I know that's really interesting thing, you yeah. know, way to look at it because you're right. I mean, that really happened because of the the financial changes in income, and it wasn't so much. I mean, you know, again, the over. Uh, value properties played into effect, but they were just dropping back to what a regular value is or just below that regular value. And so, you know, again, looking at today's data um, and what it is, I mean, 
it's more, it's, yeah, it's not going to be income-based because the banks became so much more strict on stated income and everything else. So it's going to be a different metric. And so finding that metric of what you're talking about here, just looking at the values that are over appreciated, well, essentially. I am actually, well, okay. No, I'm actually, um, no, I'm actually arguing kind of that it's um, the opposite that, okay, whichever reason happens in a sense, whichever reason happens to, um, to sort of lead us to be overvalued right now, that's always going to be a sort of a remainder component. Right, right. And sort of we don't something an unpredicted kind of term, let's yep. say. And, but that's the kind of term where we, we just, whichever the driver is of that overvaluedness, it's just like hype or like people getting overexcited or whichever thing happened or like obviously like uh, um, lenient lending and things like that. Um, so, so whichever the driver is, it's going to be captured with a margin by very fundamental variables, right? which is going to be income, it's going to be uh, housing, we can look at housing shortages in addition to income. Yeah. Um, that's, uh, that's just, that's what I see in the data. I don't see real estate being particularly, you know, something driven by crazy stuff. It's just, uh, it's just. Well, there's a factor playing in, right? Like you're saying, there's got to be some sort of a factor that drives in and that's just the result. Uh, of yeah. It. That's completely, yeah. And then that's completely possible that it gets driven by all kinds of factors that are going to like make it overvalued. But, but, but yeah. And uh, yeah. So another thing just like uh, on interest rates I wanted to mention. So, so if we take, uh, for example, so cap rates and interest rates, they have a relationship, right? They have, um, positive correlation between uh, cap rates and interest rates. Uh, hmm. What was I going to try to show? Okay, I guess that's just as a reference point. But if we take as an example, um, because the cap rate is sort of the inverse price rent, like um, the inverse of price rent, which is nevertheless sort of an affordability measure of sort, not exactly affordability, but sort of also a valuation measure. But if we take the price income, we take the valuations that I see personally, at least as most appropriate valuations, um, you know, finance valuations, and we take those versus, in, uh, sorry, valuations in the rest, and we take those versus interest rates. So we would see actually um, the valuations historically since 1975 in the US remain fairly steady. So price to income ratio was about six and kind of stayed about six. And interest rates have been on a long-term 40-year downturn. So interest rates have been dropping and dropping and dropping and dropping. And yet valuations haven't. So it's, uh, it's quite interesting because like I was here and I was um, speaking to, uh, to someone who suggested like very properly, um, you know, is that shouldn't you adjust, sort of adjust valuations to the new level of interest rates, maybe whichever stuff you're seeing is just going, going to be going to be changed in that scenario so for example in one way to do that in finance you can have price earnings ratios and you can um, sort of adjust them for interest rates and, and there is you know uh, sort of obtain sort of fair valuations you know sort of adjusted price earnings ratios and should we do the same thing in real estate and what the data suggests is it seems we shouldn't do the same thing it's just because uh, valuations can basically remain the same. And it's quite interesting, like in, in income terms. So it's, I've been just kind of stunned to see how much um, income is driving this. I was thinking it's going to be more complicated. I tried running a regression on like multiple variables and it all kind of performs, you know, does not improve, uh, you know, the, the regression results particularly much. 
if you just like simply include income. So, so yeah, those are like other, I mean, there can be other studies from there. Once you normalize prices, so to say, by income, you can then look at volatility, risk-adjusted returns, correlation, autocorrelation of those normalized prices. Um, you can also, I think one of the main useful application is, uh, let's see, do you know what, because I, and I didn't include it here. I was speaking of price performance since the previous peak. But that's not the proper way to do it, since if you take Florida, Florida was very overvalued back then. So you're not going to have like a good idea of how the market is doing. So Florida uh, is roughly at similar prices now as it was in 2007. <laughs> but in fact, this is the best performing market in the whole eastern half of the U.S. But how do we know it's the best performing market? If we don't know when it was fairly valued, like I wouldn't be able to save on that. So initially, when I was looking at, okay, simply like that, price performance since the peak, I don't know, for it appears that's like a shaky volatile market. That's how it appeared to me. Mm, but if you, so, so, so another thing is like, you need to have the history evaluations, you know, fully to be able to know, okay, at which point real estate was fairly valued in different places to be able to say at all, did, did this market perform well or not? Or maybe it was just, uh, you know, super shifted in its, uh, these prices were super irrational at that time and you're taking it at the wrong time point. So, yeah. Fascinating, man. What, uh, you know, what a different way to look at investing. And, you know, again, going back to taking some of this information, taking some of this data and being able to use it in a way that helps you make the proper decisions in your own investing, you know, methods, uh, you know, especially when it comes to real estate. I mean, there are so many different factors that play in and utilizing this information. I mean, I think it just makes you a much more strategic investor. Um, and I think anybody that, you know, again, just goes out there willy nilly, they're going to find out they may get lucky a couple of times. It's the gamble, but having as much information and being as prepared as possible going into any investment that you ever make, is going to really protect you and it's going to give you just a, a better foothold on what you're doing. Mm -hmm. I agree. I agree. And um, yeah, so that's a great, that's a great summary, Dave. And um, yeah, I mean, I wanted to say like to investors, like just a note to investors, my kind of selection criteria myself for, for properties and mar markets, I guess. So it's, I have sort of three main viewers. So one is that I, for me, make real estate very attractive. So one is uh, leveraged marketing efficiency. That's colloquially called value-add in, in, uh, in real estate, right? But it yep. doesn't necessarily need to involve physical alteration to the property. It can, you can have leveraged marketing efficiency where you don't even touch the property. There can be, and I've been doing that upstate, where I've been purchasing uh, sort of turnkey properties and uh, actually taking all my investment dollars on the basis of simply why? Well, there is a risk behind it. There is a reason for everything, but simply markets are illiquid. There are things that are mispriced, especially if you, if you pull a lot of properties, a lot of data. So in the, at the tail of this distribution, you're going to have some properties that are mispriced in those illiquid markets. Of course, since it's illiquid, you're going to take on the risk that maybe you cannot sell it afterwards. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, but, but if you figure out a, a good strategy for selling it, uh, which, uh, for example, what we've been doing with my partner, there has been seller financing. Yeah. Offering seller financing has been like a good strategy for kind of to make it attractive to some to some um, to some investors. And um, so, so if you you have a some kind of exit strategy, that's uh, you know that's uh, just 
a way to utilize in a leverage levered way, levered way the marketing efficiency and lever, levered surplus cash flow. I mean that's pretty much what people are talking in real estate. So you have you have the spread between cap rates and and interest rates. Now, if you, if you have cap rates at 10%, interest rates at 5%, and you lever this five times, that's sort of high level speaking, 25% cash on cash return. So that's the kind of the surplus cash flow, which is what a lot of people in the talk about, like cash flow, right? Yep. But the, and the third thing being a robust market. So a robust market, I think I called it peak to current, but I had to call it fair valuation to current price performance. So strong price performance where you're aware of when the market has been fairly valued before. And a market that is not subject to, if you believe you're closer to the end of the cycle, that is not, not currently overvalued. Or if you want to take on the risk, okay, that's the stronger performing market. You want to play on autocorrelation. You can select that market, but sort of be aware and that you, you should exit at some point. So those are like some selection criteria. I think uh, investment managers in real estate, I think they have been really, really good at identifying um, undervalued properties. I think that's done outstanding. If you think about it, even if you compare in finance, I think where nobody believes there's anything undervalued. Yep. It's an efficient market. So people, you know, just buy a stock and et cetera and pay the market price. In real estate, this is working actually, I think, really well where a huge fraction of investors actually do aim not to pay the market price, right? And do aim to purchase something undervalued. So that on its own is a really robust quality approach. Um, it's just they don't know where mar- the market stands. They just they they, they don't know. And I, I've spoken to because I um, I have my own webinar and I've spoken to a few syndicators who were investing back in 2007 and who were managing like um, significant assets back in 2007. And they um, so in all cases they they didn't know in 2007 is their market overvalued and they actually lost money afterwards on that. And it was something completely preventable. Completely preventable, in my opinion, but it's just one should uh, take on the kind of the, um, you know, it's the way in finance. In finance, you have like complex quantitative models for all kinds of stuff, and like something like price earnings ratios is like the minimum of the minimum, right? It's just like the bare thing to use. And in real estate, you know, like we use nothing, like there's like zero, <laughs> zero, almost zero analytics. And so that's what I've been kind of urging here, you know, let's, I think it would help everybody to just use, you know, at least be aware of. <laughs> sort of price earnings ratios, the equivalent of price earnings ratios in finance. And I think that's, uh, that would, uh, would benefit, uh, benefit everyone. So. Yeah, I yeah. totally agree, man. This has been uh, super yeah. eye-opening for sure. So I appreciate you being willing to, to share your insight and your wisdom. Because like I say, I mean, the data speaks, right? That is fact. It's what it is. You can't dispute it. And so that can really make some serious changes and have you become a much more savvy investor. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. (laughs) Absolutely, man. Well, Stefan, this really has been such an amazing episode. Like I say, I appreciate the time and energy that you've uh, spent in being with us today. Um, I know that you are a very busy man. And so I appreciate you being willing. Um, If somebody wants to connect with you uh, or check out some of the webinars, some of the other stuff that you've done, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, sure. So, so the best way is to go to nvanalytics.com. So, nv with a envvy with a double v, nvanalytics.com, and sample report. If they want to get like a sample report of some of the data I shared here, it's a it's a free report that they can use at the state level. They can kind of see, okay, is their state over undervalued um, at the moment. Um, also, uh, but at the same website, nvanalytics.com, they can 
uh, schedule a call with me for mentorship if they want to learn more about data-driven investing. I also organize uh, like a webinar, Finance Meets Real Estate. It's out of New York City, but we've been like pretty much nationwide now. So, so that's every Tuesday, 6.30 p.m., Finance Meets Real Estate. It's also on YouTube. So you can, you can search it there and, and sign up. Awesome. I'll make sure those links are in uh, the show notes too. Um, and then, Stefan, there's one, one more question. This is one that I ask pretty much every guest that I have on the podcast. And this goes more into, you know, just the life and, and the bigger picture stuff. But it's one of my favorites. And the question is simply, if you were given one more day to live on this earth, what would be the information that you've, you know, through all of your research, all of your study, you living your life, what, what would you leave behind as your, your legacy, your, your wisdom? Oh, that's a difficult question. <laughs> in business, in personal business, life, life personal, all the above, man. It's, it's one of those seriously fun questions. Yeah. Just pay attention to your loved ones and, you know, like to your kids and your, your wife, and, you know, whoever people you have around you for that day. And just that's a, that, that would be my only, you know, my only, uh, my only takeaway. Awesome, man. I appreciate it. Thanks again so much. And uh, everybody out there, make sure to infuse hope to those in need by teaching correct principles that lead to result-driven action. Go out and make it a great day. This has been Stefan Svetkov. And uh, again, his information to connect with him will be in the show notes. So Stefan, thanks again. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing everybody on the next episode. Are you ready to learn how you can take your life and your business to the next level? Learn how you can create side income? and have different assets pay for your life and your lifestyle. Tune in next week to the Wealth Reliance Podcast. This is Dave Deal signing out. Thank you so much and have a great week.